Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, the podcast where we don't read books or comics or tea leaves. Nah, we're too busy reading x-rays and CTs and such. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me, he may not make my top 10 list for x-ray second opinions, but he does make my top 10 list for podcast co-hosts and dinner party guests. It's Francesco Gaylard. Wow, top 10. High praise indeed, Dixon. <laughs> Have we even had nine other people on the podcast yet? <laughs> oh, I don't just mean co-hosts on the podcast. I mean any podcast anywhere any? in the world. Oh, that yeah. is high praise. You're right up there. Oh, yep. wow. That's amazing. Like Thank Annabelle Crabb and then Frank Gaylord. So that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> so for today's episode, we're going to listen to a musculoskeletal x-ray interpretation panel discussion that I hosted back in July at Radiopedia 2023 with Matt Skowski and Andrew Murphy. And this followed on from a lecture by Matt about lumbar spine x-ray interpretation and one from Murph about top 10 missed extremity fractures. And so that's why I went for a top 10 theme in the intro. Top 10 is very clickbaity, isn't it? Is, it? Yeah. But I'm, uh, I'm going to need your help with a bit of click-through rate, actually, Dixon, because you know what October means, don't you? Mm, dry October? It's Radiopedia census time. Wow, you look really excited. <laughs> <laughs> I am. Tell me more. So, dear listeners, Radiopedia census, what is it? Well, every year we run a census of our readers and users and contributors to one, understand a little bit what our audience is and to guide kind of where our focus is on some of our projects and editorial projects, mm -hmm. particularly for the coming year. And it sounds boring, but it's actually really important because it's pretty easy to just end up in your own little, what's the, the current term, an echo chamber. Because we interact mostly with our editorial group, it's easy to lose track of the fact that the vast majority of people who use Radiopedia aren't members of the editorial board. And so finding out a little bit about who you are and what you like about the site, what we could improve, does make a big difference. I don't know if we've got time for a top 10, but perhaps you could give us your top three most interesting, I don't know, statistics that you've learned from oh, the previous so Radiopedia Sensei. Is, is the plural of census Sensei? Sensei. Censuses. Censuses. Yeah. Tell me more, Sensei. And there's a few that actually did stand out. The first one is that uh, how many do you think of our audience or respondents are not radiologists or radiology trainees or radiographers? Um, well, I base it on the conference survey feedback that I've seen. And in that case, it's uh, probably about 80% are radiologists or uh, radiology trainees. Uh, so the minority yeah. yeah, so the for the site, it's it's higher than that, though. It's about 30% or about a third are not radiologists or trainees or radiographers. And that's, um, that's mostly physicians and surgeons and emergency physicians and GPs and medical students and nurses and physios, etc. But one thing that is a little bit surprising is that less than 10% are radiographers or technicians or sonographers. I, I think I'd love to grow that, really. Because mm. I've never really pictured Radiopedia about being for radiologists. I'd love to see more radiographers, not just on the site reading our stuff, but being involved and contributing. So that's one. And now we play some awesome music. Number two. <laughs> <laughs> okay, number two of our top three interesting facts from Census 2022. <laughs> <laughs> Drawing it out. Of our non radiology respondents. So that's. Of that third, 
83% said that at least occasionally they interpret imaging without a report, which, I mean, I suppose that's not super surprising, but that means a lot of people are looking at a lot of images and coming up with their own opinion yeah. without reading the thing that radiologists mostly create as part of our work, right? I wonder what modalities are like. I imagine it would be x-rays. They'd look at a lot of x-rays on their own, but maybe MRIs less so. Maybe they'd have a bit of a go at a CT. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think often when it seems simple, the report doesn't get read. I know some neurosurgeons, for example, if, you know, someone who has known breast cancer mets and they present with a lump in the brain, I don't know how often they read the full report or just look at the Mm. picture and go, yep, there's three mets and move on. It does raise the question of, you know, given that with the advent of PACs and especially browser-based PACs viewers where you can view it on your phone or from home, et cetera, and that radiology departments no longer have a monopoly on the physical object of the film, which was the case when mm. I started training. It's like, you shall not have the film until I have finished my report. <laughs> it's in my it bag. Is mine. <laughs> that means everyone is looking at the pictures. And so what is it that radiologists are really offering? And how do we make sure that our reports are read? Mm. One thing is don't make them so bloody long, people. Short reports. <laughs> Short reports. Often when I'm doing like orthopedic follow-up uh, x-ray and you're putting out the report and you know that you know the orthopedic surgeon has likely looked at it already already I managing know. the patient and it doesn't make a difference but the only time they're ever going to read that report is when they missed something they missed yeah. a screw that had become fractured or loose and then they look back and go oh i wonder whether the radiologist missed it too and i can blame them yeah, exactly <laughs> i reckon that's that's often all they use our reports for which does mean that we have to be extra careful about not the main obvious thing in those studies right you need to focus at the edge of the film for those sort of complications for is this fracture a pathological fracture rather than just a normal mm. fracture because they're the things that are going to be missed by the surgeon Okay, and the third one. Number three. And number three, we have a section which says, what do you personally think are the greatest impairments to you contributing to Radiopedia? And there's a bunch of options and people can choose one or more of them. Like, I don't have enough time or I didn't know I could contribute, all of those Mm -hmm. sort of things. The most common answer is, I don't feel like I know enough to contribute meaningfully. What do you think Mm. of that, Dixon? I'm not surprised that that's what a lot of people think. It's a little bit of that imposter syndrome coming Mm. in, but it really isn't the case. We've seen contributions from medical students that are phenomenal. If you're willing to take a deep dive on a topic, read the literature, synthesize it into improving a Radiopedia article, that's often better than an experienced radiologist who doesn't have much time getting in and doing the same thing. Often you'll uncover more more juice doing that. The other side of it is often the contributions can be small. They can just be corrections of typos, making a sentence read a little bit better. And so I think everybody can really contribute meaningfully to the site and that shouldn't be something that puts people off from starting out. I think that's really important. And I think one of the things that the work we've done with Radiopedia and our conference, where we choose speakers primarily on how good a teacher they are and a speaker they are, not 
on the basis of whether they've got professor in front of their name or how many publications they've got, is that the act of teaching is not the same as the act of being really good at doing it or having done a lot of research. You know, they're sometimes correlated, but not not all the time. It's a bit like when you go to the uh, watch the Olympics and you know the uh, springboard diving coach is a five foot two fat Eastern European guy with a crew cut. <laughs> and it's like, well, you can't dive, but it doesn't mean they can't teach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a good analogy. And so I, I really like the idea that through Radiopedia and through the articles and through our courses that you kind of break down that um, dichotomy between there are people who teach and people who learn and those two don't overlap. And I don't mm. think that's true at all. As you say, everyone can contribute. The other thing is that it amplifies. So if you get on and make a small edit to an article, often that triggers other editors who have an interest yeah. in that article to jump on and further elaborate on the topic and to really improve that article. So often just that little edit to begin with is what triggers a huge revision of an article and keeps Radiopedia you know, up to date and always improving. This makes me think back to, I don't know how many years ago this is now, Dixon, probably too Close many? to 10, right? When Skowski first started contributing to the website mm. and we were both, oh, he's a chiropractor. Oh, do we want chiropractors to be contributing to the site? That's well, We can't do that. And we were really quite skeptical of it all. And I guess because, at least in my mind, for me, you know, a chiropractor is someone who waves crystals around, cracks your neck, dissects your vertebral artery, <laughs> etc. Yeah. And then we gave him a go and, I mean, Thank goodness we did, right? Matt's not only an amazing contributor, he's an amazing radiologist, an amazing teacher, an amazing illustrator. I've actually completely changed my kind of uh, a priori bias when it comes to thinking about what someone is before looking at what they actually do. Mm. And, and I think Murph is another example of that where his learning pathways on fractures of the hand and his knowledge about x-rays is... You know, if I needed my hand looked at and interpreted, I'd go to Murph before I went to myself Yeah, easily. Voluntary contributions to the site means that people can come from anywhere, from any background, yeah. and you, you have a look at their contributions and you just assess them independently and go, hey, this, this is amazing work that this person's doing. I do remember that conversation with Matt all those years yeah. ago and thinking about it. And at that time, yeah, I was very much um, a skeptic. But yeah, he's been absolutely amazing. And we'll hear from him in this episode. I actually got a massage from Matt and I hate massages usually. This was amazing. It was every muscle was pulled and pushed in just the right. Even his massage showed that he knew exactly where every muscle was. It wasn't just a <laughs> kneading a bit of dough. <laughs> so anyway, everyone, please complete the Radiopedia census. It only takes a couple of minutes and uh, you can do that by visiting radiopedia.org slash census. And while we're asking people to complete the census, we should also say that now is the perfect time for listeners to please uh, write an entertaining five-star review of the podcast around the place and to send in your letters to podcast mm -hmm. at radiopedia.org because our next episode is going to be a hostful episode Yay. and we love reading out your comments and feedback. And also if you have a journal club suggestion so a journal article that's been published recently you think's interesting for us to chat about then please send me that well or any meat related news 
Yep, we do have that segment, unfortunately. <laughs> I love a good hostful. I get to air all my goats. I've been saving up a few goats, I think. I feel like I've got a backlog of goats to <laughs> air on the podcast. <laughs> well, we'll get to those next episode. So, yeah, please send in some stuff for us to talk about. Um, well, let's get into the main segment today. So this was me a few months ago chatting to Skalski and Murphy. If you have access to the conference, then Matt's lumbar spine x-ray lecture and Murph's top 10 missed extremity fractures lecture are available on demand right now for you to watch. If you didn't register in time for the conference, then both lectures will be available in some shape or form very soon as part of the Radiopedia lecture collections and our learning pathways. So you can catch up on those if you want to. So let's listen in. And Frank, I actually want you to try and work out why I selected this panel to play today because it uh, it might just allow you to talk about something that I said we'd come back to in the future. Mm, that's intriguing. Okay. So over to past me and then present Frank and I will be back for another chat. <laughs> Joining me now are the two speakers that we've just watched. It's uh, Matt Skalski and Andrew Murphy. Thanks for being here, guys. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. Terrible illustrations, though, I must say. You guys really should up your game if you want to get invited back to the conference in the future. Yeah, I banged those out a little too quickly this year, I think. Murph, any excuse? Well, putting mine next to Skalski's is a bit unfair, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, they're both amazing illustrations and excellent quality presentations. Murph, you're a radiographer with additional qualifications in X-ray interpretation. And Matt, uh, you've also got a far greater understanding of radiography and radiographic technique than I do. So I actually, in this panel discussion, I kind of want to selfishly ask a little bit about some technical stuff if that's okay. Sure. So Matt, with your lateral lumbar spine x-rays, you spoke about the divergent beam and how that means that the central ray, which is you know around about the L3 level, gives you an accurate mm -hmm. look at the disc space around there. But as you move more superiorly or inferiorly, you kind of get a bit of an artificially narrowed look at the uh, disc, disc heights. Um, can you explain that a little bit more for us? Yeah. So assuming that someone has like a a true neutral posture, then all of the discs are in the horizontal plane, but the only x-rays passing through the patient coming in the horizontal plane are in the central portion of the beam. And on either side of that, above and below, they're going to be coming out from the focal point on the anode and spreading there out to the edges of collimation. And so they're not going to be coming in, you know, at the same uh, angle as the remainder. So you're always going to have some projectional distortion towards the edges of collimation, which will become worse the larger the collimation is. On a lumbar spine, of course, that's the biggest x-ray that we take. Uh, so we get the most beam divergence towards the edges of collimation. And so it can really artificially projectionally narrow this spaces or distort anatomy. And it's not even just with lumbar spines. You can think of like, if you're looking at an A to P lumbopelvic view, you know, you can't really assess for femoral acetabular impingement because of that projectional elongation and that type of stuff. So kind of always have to consider that divergent beam when you're reading large field of view studies. It's certainly something I hadn't thought about much before, but it makes perfect sense. And now that you've pointed it out, I kind of see it all the time when I look at those lateral lumbar spine x-rays. Yeah. Murph, have you got any uh, technical tips for acquiring lumbar spine radiographs? Lumbar spine radiographs are very high dose. So like Matt talked about in his talk, getting it the center of the chamber is really important, but it can be pretty hard and it'll try to punch through a lot of tissue. So it's often best to use a, a manual exposure based on your AP um, and kind of doubling the MAS 
plus minus a little bit and then trying to collimate as tightly as possible um, and using like that physical collimation. So we actually did a study at our site and we went through a lot of our radiographs that were like collimated. Um, and then when we found the actual real collimation after we took off the digital collimation, they had just been digitally cropped. And you can see a huge difference as Matt showed in his talk of the uh, x-rays that are properly collimated and control that scatter. So it's a really big factor with those lateral lumbar radiographs. That digital collimation must be very, very tempting for radiographers to do, it's but very... something that generally should be avoided. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the other thing, Matt, was the slight obliquity or the slight scoliosis that you showed, and that was interesting because you can see that those two posterior vertebral lines kind of come into view rather than just seeing one, and you showed how... Mm -hmm you know, you can be tempted to miscall like a spondylolisthesis in that setting just because you're actually seeing one edge rather than the other edge. And it makes it look like it might have jumped forward a bit. Yeah. And, and you know, once you look at these for a while, you kind of get used to that and you don't even really notice it. But mm. I notice when people first start reading, they really like to call, uh, particularly retrolisthesis for some reason, which are pretty rare uh, in practice. So um, yeah, always, always look for that double posterior line and not even just lumbar spine. You can think cervical spines as well. You know, if you get some obliquity, it can be tempting to start being suspicious for like a unilateral facet dislocation or something. So need to pay attention to the technique and uh, kind of knowing what your limitations are going to be in interpreting that study. Now, Skowski, you were um, clearly paid by Universal Pictures to mention the <laughs> Oppenheimer ossicle, some kind of subliminal movie morning. promotion, was it? <laughs> Yeah, well, I guess better that than Barbie, which is coming out at the same time, which I hear is kind of the opposite. <laughs> uh, and Murph, I, you know, don't think I didn't notice the subliminal Pokemon theme in your lecture, mate. You didn't say top 10 missed extremity fractures, you've got to catch them all, but you might as well have, man. I mean, got a paycheck from Nintendo coming along, have you? I've, uh, I've never heard of. I've never heard of this, and I'll be sure to check out Pokemon. Um, yeah, <laughs> it yeah. sounds interesting. Yeah. Yeah, ignorance does not equal innocence in the uh, eyes of copy <laughs> copyright law. It's recorded now. So, <laughs> before we run through some of the the top missed fractures that you covered in your lecture, Murph, I want to go back to some more of that radiographic theme technique because when you spoke about the femoral neck fractures, you mentioned you know various types of lateral radiographs that can be used. It's not something that I've thought about much before. It's kind of like I just get the images and I interpret mm -hmm. them. I don't think about what type of lateral it is. But can you maybe go through that a little bit again for me? Yeah, so this is pretty a pretty contentious issue in radiography, especially in different departments where they image the uh, femoral neck. So you have your stock standard rolled lateral, which is where you get the patient, you roll them onto their side, often their sore side, and it's more an oblique lateral of the neck of femur. It's not really a proper lateral, so you get a like, foreshortening and you don't get the nice elongated neck. The true mm -hmm. lateral, which is what a lot of orthopedic surgeons will write on request if they haven't got what they wanted, they'll write true lateral, please, is that horizontal beam lateral. So it'll involve raising the patient's good leg or unaffected leg and shooting a horizontal beam angled to the neck of femur, making it a true lateral of that particular mm -hmm. part of anatomy. I think we get really focused on just getting that 90 degree view of that bone without realizing that it's not just a straight bone, that there is an angled component. So the H-beam is angling to that component. And it means that the patient isn't rolling onto their bad hip 
which can be problematic and cause a lot of pain. So that is like the gold standard for acute imaging of the hip when there's a suspected fracture. And of course, you have like your more technical laterals, such as the Clements Nakayama view, which involves no patient movement at all. It's very fun to say. It's even better to annotate on the x-ray, like Clements Nakayama. <laughs> um, you have to like look it up every time to get the spelling correctly. Yeah, yeah. But um, that involves angling the beam posteriorly and towards the neck of femur with the detector sitting slightly below the table so you can kind of catch that x-ray. And that's for bilateral femoral fractures and femoral shaft fractures. It's a very technical uh, projection and needs a lot of skill, but it's it's useful in trauma. Now, while, while we're talking about the, the femoral neck fracture, I love you mentioned the smudge sign, that slightly disrupted, impacted trabecular pattern in the femoral neck. Because along with tracing the, the smooth arc of the femoral neck and looking for a subtle step in the cortex, that kind of smudginess, that loss of trabecular pattern is really what you know most often I see in, in femoral neck fractures, other than the, you know, the really obvious ones. And I think it's easy for beginners in particular to always think that a fracture, you're looking for a lucent line, right? But in many cases, that's not what you're, you're looking for, right? Yeah, and it's um it's an important point going back to that technique as well because because there's a lot of like superimposition and positional factors um with a neck of femur fracture, knowing that it isn't just a straight lucent line is important because it will change the way the radiographer does the next image. If they see a neck of femur fracture, they're gonna do the horizontal beam lateral, not the rolled lateral, and put them on that mm-hmm. really sore hip. So kind of taking that into account when you're looking at an AP does help a lot from a technical perspective as well, that you're not just looking for a a break in the cortex. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something I try and train people on when they first start looking at hips is really kind of memorizing what the normal trabecular pattern should look like and what the primary compressive versus tensile groups uh, courses are. And then based on age, how many kind of extra trabeculae are going to be there because it's not only femoral neck fractures, which of course is what we're talking about now, but even subtle things like lymphoma can have subtle trabecular alterations and that might mm. be the only sign. So I think in any bone, but particularly in the hip where we have really striking trabecular patterns, it's good to have those committed to memory, uh, which really just comes from volume. You know, you just need to look at a lot of hips to, you know, mm. so they look like your old friend that you can recognize walking down the street from a block away. And even when you're interpreting CT spine in trauma patients, right? you're not looking for often a lucent line through the, the vertebral body. You're often looking for just that little bit of um, compression of the superior end plate with a little wave of rarefraction, a little, a little wave of sclerosis yeah. running through where Line it's of condensation. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Murph, I don't want to go through every one of your top 10 missed oh, fractures that you covered in a lecture. <laughs> um, you've, you've done it beautifully already. But um, I have just quickly jotted down a few points that I want to emphasize. So I'm going to read some of those out if that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's all right with you. Yeah. Okay, so uh, I've written here the subtle distal radial fracture. So really common. And my tip there is to look hard on the lateral image, particularly the dorsal cortex of the distal radius for a subtle step or some angulation there. Because I think people tend to, they kind of see on the lateral image, they see the distal ulna and the radius overlapping mm-hmm. with each other. And then they kind of just give up. It's like, oh, two bones overlapping. You can't <laughs> look at that, right? But you actually need to go, all right, which of these lines is the dorsal cortex of the distal radius? And then focus in and look for any angulation there. It's similar actually to the uh, lateral ankle radiograph i see a lot of people miss lateral malleolus fractures because sometimes you know those ones that are coronally oriented on the on the frontal projection and on the mortis view you don't really see but then on the lateral you can pick them up 
and you need to look through the distal tibia in order to actually spot those fractures. Yeah, no, I think that's a great tip and uh, worth worth remembering that anytime you have superimposition, you really have to do your due diligence and separate out what's what. I see it on on lateral hip radiographs as well because again, like it doesn't look as pretty as the the AP projection of the hip. People kind of tend not, not to look at it very much, but that's where you'll often spot your femoral neck fractures much more obviously if you know how to follow the cortex on those lateral radiographs. Murph, you also spoke about pediatric elbow fractures and subtle radial head fractures in the adult elbow. Um, Mm. So spotting an elbow joint effusion is like, you know, a really key and basic x-ray interpretation skills, you know, spotting that anterior sale sign and spotting any fat pad out posteriorly. I guess if you see an effusion and it's a child, but you don't see a fracture, then we tend to, you know, assume that they've got an occult supracondylar fracture. Whereas uh, in adults, if you see an effusion and you can't see a fracture, then we generally uh, assume that there's an occult radial head fracture and kind of manage accordingly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think one of the the things that catches a lot of people out is that that anterior fat pad does sit quite flush with like the anterior Mm. cortex of the humerus. So when you're first, you know, reading elbow x-rays and you're like, okay, so I'm looking for a joint effusion and like, that's what you're looking for. You're like, I'm going to find a joint effusion and then I'll know it's abnormal. And they see that black line and it's sometimes like a Mac effect, just anterior to that distal humerus. And they go, oh, that's, that's definitely a joint effusion. And they call it. From my context as a radiographer, like when we see a joint effusion, we'll flag it and we'll put a note on their chart saying like joint effusion, query, fracture. But like from your end, if you can't see a, a fracture, like how do you two word that stuff? in your report because you can't write what we write where we just say i think there's a fracture maybe check it out yeah i I tend to say you know there's an elbow joint effusion while no obvious fracture is seen this would be suspicious for an occult and then if it's a child supracondylar fracture uh, or in an adult an occult radial head fracture in the setting of the radial head fracture you might uh, then go on and perform dedicated radial head views to try and Mm. spot it straight away or in other case they're just going to get reviewed in a week or 10 days or something with repeat x-rays i assume matt what about you yeah i do the same thing i say elbow joint effusion which in the setting of trauma is consistent with an occult you know like you said supracondylar radial head fracture depending on age kind of gives the clinician some uh, weight to bring them back for repeat x-rays or push them on to advanced imaging and sticking with the pediatric elbow, Murphy spoke about the ossification centers and how the order of the appearance is very set. And we remember that with the mnemonic crito. So one extra little tip that I have here is that the medial epicondyle, so the internal epicondyle, that's the one that appears earlier. And that's the one that tends to evolve and cause all the problems. And on a normal x-ray, that one should overlap a little bit with the distal humerus, right? So you usually see that medial epicondyle ossification center overlapping with the, the humerus next to it. Whereas the, the lateral epicondyle, the one that the external one, the one that comes about later, the final one, ossification center to form, that always looks slightly displaced away from the mm. distal humerus. It never overlaps with it. And it often looks like it's been evolved, but it hasn't. So that's the one where I often get people coming up to me and going, oh, has this been injured? Is that, you know, and you're like, no, 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 that, that one's normal. It's pretty rare to injure the lateral epicondyle anyway. So that's just another extra little tip uh, on you, top of that one there. I've, I've been caught out by this before as well, where the, mm. where the, the gap is quite wide and you're like, well, it looks, 
doesn't look like it should be growing out there, but it ends up being normal. Like what, yeah. what is your tolerance for calling that abnormal? Is it more the clinical picture? Yeah, I think it is the clinical picture and the overlying soft tissue signs and also just, you know, the experience of having looked at a lot of x-rays, mm. maybe getting some other ones up. You've always got a comparison on the other arm, right? So you could always get the, the child's other elbow and x-ray that to see if it looks like the ossification centre's in a similar spot. And if it is, then, then, you know, you're likely not dealing with an injury. Matt, have you got any tips as well? Yeah. If I, if I have someone come back and ask me about that, if I've ignored it, because I think it's probably normal, I just ask them, well, does it hurt there? <laughs> and then mm. <laughs> usually the answer is no. And then I'm like, well, then it's normal, isn't it? So, you know, if it comes down to it, you can actually just touch the patient. Radiologists do that a lot. They, they go, I'm just going to press right here. And if it hurts, they'll write on the form, like, yes, it actually hurts in that particular area. I was just going to say, I've got one more on my list here, but are you sick of me talking or do you want me to go for it? No, let's keep going. It's good stuff. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> so the final one I have listed here is the greater tuberosity of humerus fracture. This one was actually interesting that you brought this one up, Murph, because I think it came up in your literature review searching for what are the most common missed mm extremity fractures and it's not actually one that i'd thought about a lot before to be honest i've always found them relatively easy to spot or at least i thought so maybe i've missed a lot <laughs> but um <laughs> but but i certainly have had the experience where a patient's come in for a shoulder ultrasound for query acute rotator cuff tear and you're doing the ultrasound and you notice that there's a cortical step in the uh, in the greater tuberosity and then you you know, maybe look back on the x-ray or do a repeat x-ray and you can spot the greater tuberosity fracture. So maybe that is a, maybe that is a check area that we need to, to review a bit more on x-rays. Yeah, the context for that is like I, I spent a few months just like collecting papers about this because I didn't want to do like the anecdotal, like this is what people said that they'd missed, mm. you know, on their rotation or whatever. And that injury like popped up a few times as I was reading and I was kind of like, seems kind of like a, one that you would see pretty easily. So I like wrote it down, you know, with a question mark, but it just kept that it wasn't even like a proximal humeral fracture. It was that particular fracture over mm. and over and over again that kept getting missed. A lot of the papers were in the context of like an acute setting. So emergency, um, there definitely wasn't testing consultant radiologists. It was more residents or registrars reading on duty. But I, I I think you're right. It's it's definitely something that gets picked up in the context of a rotator cuff investigation or like more advanced modalities picking it up. But a good AP and a glenoid shoulder has enough variation in divergence and centering to give you a fighting chance of like spotting one. And I think the reverse is actually a good tip for radiologists, which is when you're doing a rotator cuff ultrasound scan for a question mark acute tear, make sure that the sonographer or you have a good look at the actual cortex of the bone, because very often, you know, if they have had a, a traumatic injury, then there will be a, a greater tuberosity fracture and, but no, no rotator cuff injury at all. Murph and Matt, that's it. I've got to the bottom of my list. Uh, anything else that you wanted to mention at this point? Yeah. I have a question for Skalski because I never actually get to pin him down. So I thought this would be the, the best <laughs> part to ask it is so. I watched your talk on the on the lumbar spine. You talked about the different views, and we've had some discussions on the editorial board about this as well, about your justification for doing flexion extension views on a chair rather than doing mm -hmm. it uh, standing up. And you asked us 
uh, on the editorial board, what we do, and we all kind of unanimously said, in Australia, in the, the centres that we work, we do them erect. But I would love for you to elaborate on why you do it sitting down, because I think these were actually like very good points. Yeah, so my my suspicion has always been, which is, and I, I actually, I think I provided some papers in our discussion group mm. um, that supported this, is that, you know, when someone is standing and flexing forward, they're mainly getting that motion from their femoral vestibular joints from their hips. And very little of that is actually going into the low back unless they're really making a conscious effort, which most people probably aren't. They're just bending forward as far as they think they can. And um, when you put someone in a seated position, they're already stressing uh, the lumbosacral junction just natively before they even flex forward. And I think one of the papers I cited, they just, their flexion stress view is, is simply seated, not even seated with flexion um, because they found that the forces put on the um, lumbar spine were actually greater in the seated position than, than in the standing flex position. And so if you really want to truly stress it to its endpoint, you kind of want to do it seated while flexing forward. And so I tell our radiographers, if they can tolerate it, to grab their knees and actually pull forward because then you're going to get a real sense of the stability. Uh, you know, of course, some people can't do that for pain or other reasons, but that's, that's when you're going to get a, a true stress view. Otherwise, you're really just testing, you know, how tight their hamstrings are. Well, I'm sitting down now and, and my lumbar spine's getting a little bit stressed. So we should yeah. wrap up this panel discussion. Thank you both for those excellent lectures. Uh, Oppenheimer is in cinemas now and the latest Pokemon <laughs> video game. It's called Scarlet and Violet. That's available on all major gaming platforms. Gentlemen, I'll see you both again very soon. See ya. See you later. All right, thanks. Nice talking. Thank you, Skalski and Murph, for joining me for that discussion a couple of months ago. Now, Gayla, do you even know what an Oppenheimer ossicle is? Yeah, isn't it a little dangly bit of bone under, like, next to a facet joint? Yeah, yeah. Accessory ossicles associated with the facet joints, usually the inferior articular process, mm -hmm. but sometimes the superior, found in 4% of lumbar spines, and usually incidental and asymptomatic, and shouldn't be confused for a fracture. That's a summary of the Radiopedia article. <laughs> there we go. Not related, of course, to Robert J. Oppenheimer. I don't think so, no. This is what we wanted to talk about, right? Because we've both seen Oppenheimer, the movie. Exactly. I thought I'd better play this episode this week. It hasn't been too long since the movie. I'll give Gaylord a chance to have a chat about it. Oh, I do like to talk about this. I uh, First of all, did you, you didn't like it that much, did you? No, I was a little underwhelmed, to be honest. Barbie was very good. I haven't seen Barbie. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing is I've actually had an interest in Oppenheimer and that era of history for, for you're many. Say, I've had an interest in building bombs for quite some time. <laughs> <laughs> no, so I've read um, over the years quite a few biographies. There's the Richard Feynman biography, Genius, by James Glick, uh, which is amazing and briefly covers um, Richard Feynman's time at Los Alamos, played by the guy from Boys who's Dennis Quaid and Meg Ryan's son, Jack, oh, yeah. Jack, Jack Quaid. Jack Quaid. Um, and he's never he's actually great. introduced in the movie, but he's- the, I would love to talk about the boys. The boys yeah, the boys he's the so tall good. guy with the bongos, is Richard Feynman. And then I've read American Prometheus, which I think is the main source of Oppenheimer. It's a fascinating period of, of history with lots of geeky physics stuff. But the thing that I really liked about the movie is that it would have been pretty easy to paint Oppenheimer as kind of a real hero. Mm -hmm. 
because, you know, he's a genius and he won the war, but he's also opposed to nuclear weapons. But I think it does a really good job of being ambiguous about him as a person, not just in his role as a human, you know, as a husband and as a normal person, but also the more I think about it, the more it's um, agnostic as to whether his position on the bomb following the end of the Second World War was genuine and how much it was self-serving mm-hmm. and to make himself out to be, you know, against it to have more relevance or, I don't know, I found that really interesting and I thought the performances really were able to bring out that ambiguity wonderfully. And mm. considering it's a three-hour movie of people sitting in small offices talking, it is remarkably engaging for that. Yeah. I think the thing that you're finding, that you're enjoying there, that ambiguity, is one of the things that kind of puts me off in that I often need a character in a movie that I love, like a really likable character, and I don't think he is that, and that's deliberately not done that because presumably in real life he wasn't. Often that's what I want from a movie is to really, really like some of the characters, and I don't think there were any that really jumped out at me as being a likable kind of character yeah that's true that's my bias that's my problem you know where i'm using movies to kind of get a little bit of that in my life so you prefer a bit of rogue nation tom cruise action i do yeah the little small group you know they've each got their role to play they've each got a little likable personality yeah so you know actually (laughs) tom cruise um is is a topic that cannot be discussed when my mother the, the mother of the podcast is around because it's like she has a little recorder that if you say the words Tom Cruise, it's like pushing play on a pre-recorded rant that she goes on about the fact she really doesn't like him. She doesn't understand why people think he's handsome. He looks, quote unquote, wolfish and slimy. (laughs) And those words will come out verbatim every time. You can even mention Tom Cruise like more than once in the same day and the same, it's like playing uh, a computer game with bad npc ai where you have the same conversation <laughs> it <laughs> just gets replayed <laughs> <laughs> the only problem i have with tom cruise is tom cruise playing jack reacher in those movies uh, because jack reacher in the novels is a very very large strong man and yeah. um, unfortunately that's not what tom cruise is but i i actually appreciate you know watching the mission impossible films i actually appreciate the ability for them to write little challenges that just happen and then resolve and then happen and resolve just yeah. constantly for 90 minutes or, or more. Yeah. And for Tom Cruise to physically do. <laughs> yeah, and then you watch other movies that try and do similar and they and they, yeah. and they often can't. Like the actual ability for them to set up those little challenges, achieve it, then move on to the next one. It's a, it's a real skill that he's obviously his writing team are very good at. Yeah, pacing both in movies and in books and in computer games is – it feels like it should be really easy and you don't even notice it except whenever you go to one that does it badly. Mm. And then you have these flat bits or the difficulty curves no good. And Yeah, I agree. I think the Mission Impossibles, considering how popcorny and silly they are, they do, while you're watching them, you just, you're entertained, even by a wolfish and slimy midget. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, <laughs> we'll move on to talk about something other than movies. Well, you talked about the Oppenheimer ossicle. Whenever there's these obscure eponymous names, I used to be 
I've sort of flip-flopped on eponymous names a bit. I used to really like them when I was a medical student because it's kind of, you know, interesting that there's these little stories. And then I went through a phase of, this is ridiculous. Why are we calling it whatever syndrome? We should just call it a a descriptive word of what it is. Mm -hmm. And actually now I've gone back to thinking eponymous names or non-descriptive names are a better choice. And the reason for that is that when we give descriptive names like PRESS, posterior reversal encephalopathy syndrome, right? Not only is it just as bad as an eponymous name in that the vast majority of people don't know what PRESS or CADISL or MIRTH stand for, Mm. but they're not even accurate descriptions because if you wanted to call it properly, it would be sometimes posterior, sometimes reversible, sort of encephalopathy, not really a syndrome. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. would make a terrible name. You might as well call it Dixon syndrome, and then you can change the definition of it as you learn more about it. And these terms then keep getting changed because people recognize that, oh, actually, it's not as simple as we initially yeah. thought when we Doesn't described it. Mm. And every five years, the term changes. And when you're reading textbooks, you can't ever find the thing because, oh, no, now it's no longer known as this thing. It's now known as you know something else. So I, I think we should embrace eponymous names. And also, I think we should go back to instead of like Rathke's cleft cyst, I think we should go back to the older flipped version, which is the cyst of Rathke. <laughs> I changed my views on eponymous names when the, the Dixon sequence came about. I was like, yeah, no, I agree. It awesome. should be named after. Yeah, it should be named <laughs> after Dixon. <laughs> it's like people come up to me and they're like, you know, are you are you the Dixon that the the sequence is named after? I'm like, no. And then I, I and I say, but apparently the guy who did come up with the Dixon sequence, people go up to him all the time and they go, are you Andrew Dixon from Radiopedia? <laughs> <laughs> do you do that podcast? You should say I didn't create the sequence, but I believe it was named after me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. In honor. In honor. <laughs> Now, was that Murph that was claiming that he'd never played Pokemon or didn't really know what Pokemon was? He was saying that to avoid copyright issues. He was saying, oh, you know, no, I had no idea I was I was mm. borrowing their theme for my lecture. Because I would think that of everyone I know, Murph would be the most likely to be running around yes. some park trying to capture Pokemons. He would be he'd be right up there. He's He's been playing um, Zelda. I know my... My son was playing the new Zelda game a few months ago when Murph came to visit us mm-hmm. and Murph was here to work on the conference and he was like, don't show me. I don't want to see. I don't want to see. I don't want to get distracted. <laughs> Have you played Pokemon? I haven't played very much, but interestingly, just in the last few months, my wife and my son have started playing Pokemon right. again as a way of my wife engaging with things that my son is doing and also getting out of the house and going for walks and stuff. But it's funny because I see actually her playing it more than him most of the time. (laughs) And sometimes in the car, like we're driving along and if you go slow enough, you can, you can still catch Pokemon and pretend you're walking. And so sometimes she's like, Oh, just slow down a bit. Just slow down. (laughs) (laughs) I find um, when it first sort of came out, I played it for, I have very short attention span for these things, so maybe a week or something just to see what mm-hmm. it was like. And the thing that struck me is Pokemon is what so many other parts of life are, just stripped down to to a sort of extreme version. But collecting Pokemons is very similar to collecting 
publications or academic mm. titles. Oh, now I'm an associate professor. I've caught the associate professor uh, Pokemon <laughs> card. And organizations kind of give you these titles like a little reward. And if you're not careful, you stop to believe that it's actually important of its own. And, you know, universities mm. are very good at this. They'll get you to do an enormous amount of work for nothing because at the end of it, they give you the super rare Pokemon card <laughs> called the Professor. <laughs> One of my favorite things with Pokemon at the moment is more to do with dad jokes. So I'll, I'll deliberately say, you know, when they're talking about Pokemon, I'll go, oh, yeah, 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 that's the evolve of Raichu, isn't it? And I'll be like, no, dad, it's nothing to do with... I'll be like, oh, yeah, 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 that's Squirtle, isn't it? And like, no, that's... <laughs> How could you not know this? <laughs> yeah. Is there a, a Poke Gym around here? And they're like, Dad. <laughs> All right, we better wrap up this uh, this episode, I guess, Gaylord. How can people get in contact with us? Well, we are at Radiopedia on Twitter and Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylord and uh, at Dr. Andrew Dixon. And you can, of course... Email us, as we said before, at podcast at Radiopedia with ideas and feedback. Mm -hmm. Don't forget to complete that census. There'll be a link in the show notes if it's radiopedia.org slash census. Uh, and also send in your letters for our hostful episode next week. Make them funny. Please. And uh, don't forget that if you want to help support Radiopedia, then you can also become a paid supporter via the website or purchase an all-access pass to our online courses and conference. And you're not doing that just for yourself, but you're also helping us give free conference access uh, and all our lectures, et cetera, access to people from 125 low and middle income countries around the world. And that's really the main emphasis of what we're about. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what else can people do to help out, Frank? And you can also leave a five-star review for this podcast in the podcast app of your choosing. Absolutely, and I'll do the little sign-off here and we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay right, everyone. Stay censuses. Sensei. Sensei. Thank you, Sensei. We've <laughs> got to catch them all. <laughs> I'll see you for a hostful next time, Gaylor. Yes. See you, Dixon. Bye-bye. Bring out the goats. Bye. Bye. <laughs>